We are continuing, as you know, in our study of the Gospel of John, and today we want to start chapter 14. Now, um, there are a number of things I want to say by way of introduction. Uh, first of all, remember John 13, which is not a part of the discourse that starts in John 14, but it's kind of like the foundation where we see Jesus uh, washing the disciples' feet, as you remember, remember that very important section, and then the Lord's commentary on why he did that, what that means. I prepared a slide which sort of illustrates that. And then the Lord's important instruction at the end of chapter 13 of this new commandment that you love one another. And uh, we, we spoke a little bit to that issue because that is not something that you won't see in the new in the old testament it is in the old testament but what's different of course is that this is in the context as he has, has said of the love between him and the father is now reflected in the love that he would see in the new covenant community which later he will call the church and so this becomes then the mark of the church the mark of the new covenant community and that is such a significant element and it's reflected in even what Jesus did in washing the disciples' feet. And so this extraordinary foundation that the Lord has laid for now what we call the Upper Room Discourse. Now, the Upper Room dis Discourse is John chapters 14, 15, and 16. And then on top of that, you have John 17, which is the high priestly prayer of Jesus, more than likely what he prayed at Gethsemane, although there is some discussion about that, and we'll get to that much later. So in chapters 14, 15, and 16, you have the teaching material, block of material we call the Upper Room Discourse, because Jesus delivers this, or teaches this, or shares this with the disciples in the Upper Room. So that's a no-brainer, but that's why it's called the Upper Room Discourse. And it's unique. You only see this in the Gospel of John. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And yet some of its, um, the, the commentary on it and the elaboration on it, you do see in the Apostle Paul's 13 letters. So this is a very, very important passage of Scripture. Uh, as I said now uh, earlier, it's unique to the Gospel of John, but in it are some wonderful verses that often even non-believers are familiar with the verses, and I, I really want to spend a lot of time on it. The other thing about the Upper Room Discourse is that it is introducing to us the marks of the New Covenant community, and what and I, that's what I call it, and I have some slides I'll be showing you as we get further into it in the, in the weeks to follow, but how important this really is for us in 2020, what Christ is saying here is the basis of our hope, the basis of our love, which, which he talks about. But there are four my phrases in the Upper Room Discourse. Um, and again, you will hear me talk about those. But my peace, my love, my joy. And then in chapter 15, just incredible phrase, my friends. Christ will say, I have called you a number of things. You have called me Lord, but today I call you my friend. So it's just a very remarkable phrase. So as we go through this, and again, I'll, I'm going to uh, talk about these extensively, but look for those four my phrases, my peace, my love, my joy, and my friends, as we go through this amazing discourse of Jesus. All right, let's get started then with chapter 14, and we'll begin with verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now that term troubled is the same word that was used, we just read it last week in verse 21 of chapter 13, where Jesus says, I'm troubled. And it is that term of, it's not only anxiety, but it's, a, it's coming to terms with the reality of what's about to happen. It's coming to terms with, because of the context, what will be the, the crucifixion of Jesus. Because remember, we're in Holy Week. This is Maundy Thursday, as it's often called. It's the Thursday night before, before Good Friday. And so the, the disciples are upset. The disciples are filled with questions. The disciples are filled with 
a degree of anxiety, a degree of uncertainty. And so Jesus, these are wonderful words. Jesus comforts them. Jesus comforts them by making a series of promises to them. But he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Amen. That statement is high Christology. That's, that is a remarkable theological comment on, on the deity of Jesus Christ, on the nature of God as Trinity. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. I mean, the command is to believe in God, trust in God, have confidence in God. Believe in me, have trust in me, have confidence in me. Because throughout the Gospel of John, and that's one of the unique, as we have talked before, one of the unique contributions of the Gospel of John to the Gospel accounts is that strong emphasis on the deity of Christ, the great I am, seven times the I am statements. So, I mean, don't miss this. It's, you can gloss over that quickly. Believe in God, believe also in me. Don't do that. That's an extraordinary command. You believe in God, believe also in me. You trust in God, trust in me. You have confidence and faith in God, trust, trust, have faith and confidence in God, have faith and confidence, trust in me. And he says, that's important because I'm about to make a bunch of promises to you. The promise of a new home, the promise of my return, the promise of a great reunion. So let's look, first of all, he makes a promise of a new home. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. Now, let me stop there. So you, you have this, it, it, this would have been astonishing for them to hear this. It isn't that it's new truth, but Jesus is connecting the truth about heaven and eternity with himself. That the new home isn't only a place. The new home is a person. You will be with Jesus. And so he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. And that, that's a reference to heaven. And it's a reference to what we should understand, because we have such a little understanding of this, really. But heaven is not just some ethereal idea. That's what Plato said. It's a place. It's a physical place. And Jesus was stressing that. This isn't just some transcendent, ethereal uh, ideal. That's how Plato put it. It is a real place with real rooms. In, you know, um, the old King James, in my, in my father's house, there are many mansions. That's, that's too extraordinary of a translation. <laughs> I mean, you kind of get the idea that we're all going to live in Bill Gates' $137 million house. That's not the idea. But it's, it's a place. That's the importance. And if it were not so, I would have told you that. And here it is. I go to prepare a place for you. And again, I, I stress what is so important. Heaven is a physical, real place. And Jesus is preparing our place for us. And he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, and here is this, not only the promise of a new home, but a second promise, a promise of my return. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So again, you, he's wrapping the teaching of the promise of a place, a real physical place, with the reality this place is where he is. He came from that place. He went back to that place. He's coming back for us and to take us to that place. So, I mean, don't miss this. This is profound truth that Christ is teaching these people and therefore teaching you and me. What he's teaching them, he's teaching us. I'm coming back for you. And so they or, you know, they're processing all of this. It would be overwhelming for them. 
but they're processing all of this. Jesus has been telling them, I'm going back to the Father, I'm going to the cross, where I go, you can't go, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now he's expanding on that. I'm going, the ascension, I'm going back to the Father, but I'm going to come back for you. And where I am, I'm going to take you to be with me. So these are, these are wonderful promises. These are promises of hope. These are promises of encouragement to counter that term in verse 1, they're troubled. And for you and me who are troubled, you know, I mean, more and more I'm hearing people say, 2020 is an incredible year, isn't it? And it's like everything you could possibly imagine that would be destructive and harmful and hurtful is happening. <laughs> Whether it's wildfires in the West Coast, the flooding in the Gulf states, or just COVID stuff, everything, it's just almost like it's coming apart. Let not your hearts be troubled. Keep your focus on Jesus. He's made a promise of a new home. He's made a promise of a return. But notice, and where I am, you may be also a promise of a grand reunion. And that reunion is the reunion of all those who belong to Christ. And that this is expanded upon by Paul. Paul expands upon this promise in these three verses, uh, um, uh, even four verses, but these three verses, he, he expands on those in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, where he teaches the rapture. And the, the debate is always, where do you put the rapture? But he teaches the rapture. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, he teaches about, this is when we receive the glorified resurrected bodies. And this is where we go to be with Christ. And then other, other passages that teach of the marriage supper of the Lamb, or the marriage of the Lamb, and then eventually the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of this isn't the second coming of Christ. This is all about Christ coming back for his church, Christ coming back for his new covenant community, and to take them to be with him. And that and I, I'm going to stop there because other parts of the New Testament just add a great amount of detail about this, of what this is going to involve. Can we put a timeline together, what this is going to look like? Jesus isn't doing that. He's speaking in broad, broad promises. But those promises are the antidote to the troubling. You're troubled? Here's the antidote. The promise of a new home, the promise of my return, the promise of a grand reunion. All those promises are in the first three verses of chapter 14. That's why for Christians for 2,000 years, this is one of the most comforting passages in the Bible. Because here we hear our Savior making these wondrous promises to us. And this is a major axiom of Scripture. A future promise should affect present behavior. And the promises that Jesus has made here should affect how we live now. And that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples 2,000 years ago. That's what he's saying to us 2,000 years later. Now, there's a lot more I want to talk about beginning in verse 4. But do you have this? This is a fantastic three verses. Okay? So are you, yeah, are, are you saying that um, in, in number, number, um, a number verse number one that that they are the same what you have in fact in effect God speaking to you now because we are we are one is is that um, believe in God I mean, even though the, that's right if you believe in God okay. believe also in me because see the gospel of John who I am I'm the great I am <laughs> so yes I mean mm -hmm. it, it's that mutual, what they call in theology, mutual congruence. It is the identity of the Father and the identity of the Son, separate persons within the unity of God in his essence, one essence of three persons. And because of yes. that, you can trust what he says, or even maybe more importantly, you can believe what he says. These aren't baseless promises. Not... These are rock-bottom promises from the eternal yeah. God. Those are solid and then it seems like um, the um, he's giving he's giving them a clarity too, isn't he? When he's 
when he's saying the body, um, there's a real place because I'm going to prepare a place. So not only do we have our spirit and our soul, but body is, is right. that kind of, yeah. I, yeah. I think they could relate well to that. I think. Absolutely. And that again, as I, as I said a minute ago, the apostle Paul expands on these three verses and yeah. like I said, example would be First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and then all of 1 Corinthians 15, which is the major teaching in the Bible on the literal resurrection of our bodies and so on. So we will inhabit this place with our in our glorified resurrected bodies, not just a spirit. Yeah. Because when Thanks, he says, yeah. I'm coming back for you, that is him coming back for the church, which is what the promise is in 1 Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> Dr. Eckman? Yes, sir. So uh, in verse 3, then, would uh, I will come? Is that is that the rapture we're talking about? Yes, yeah, it is. Yes. Yep. Dead in Christ rise first, and we are allowed to call up to be with the Lord. Now, as we've talked about this before, the, the debate and controversy is where do you put the rapture? The yes. Rapture is an event prophesied by uh, the scriptures, it, where you put it is always the debate, but yes. So, I mean, again, this is where, and, and both, both threads now are stressing this. This is speaking of an event, and it's speaking of a real physical event going to a real physical place based on the authority and promise of God. Believe in God, believe also in me, of what the future will hold. A new home, a new a promise of my return, and a blessed, wondrous reunion. And that reunion is described in 1 Thess 4, where the dead in Christ rise first, and we are alive and caught up to be with the Lord forever. I mean, it's just that's all of the stuff that you build on from these three verses throughout the rest of the New Testament. And again, I mean, that is the whole, that is the whole point of Scripture, God makes a promise, and he then elaborates on that promise in the rest of the, of the scriptures. And so, I mean, it's just, uh, this, is, this was one of my mother's favorite passages. She's with the Lord now. She passed away last April, but she really, you know, she really hung on to this because you, you believe what Jesus is saying. And that belief and trust, the verse three, 1 through 3, becomes the basis of what Paul talks about in Titus 2.13 as that blessed hope. <laughs> this is the hope we have. Jesus isn't just leaving us here. He's coming no. back for us. <laughs> and where he yeah. is, we're going to be. So it's, yeah. it's just a fantastic promise. So your thought paper for next week is elaborate on <laughs> verses 1 through 3 and make five personal <laughs> applications to your life. Verse 4. Now, it isn't that Jesus shifts the subject. He's continuing his teaching, but he's zeroing in on the importance of himself. And you know the way to where I'm going. He's just said, where I am, you're going to be. I'm going back to the Father. He's been teaching this over and over again. And then he says, you know the way to where I'm going. In other words, you know how to get there. Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 5, Thomas stands up and says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So Thomas <laughs> is challenging Jesus on what he said in verse 2. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he challenges Jesus on what he meant by the word way. So you know, think, what? Come on, Thomas. <laughs> Can't you put this together? But this is Thomas. And so he says, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? And I, you know, if I were Jesus, I would have said, I'd have blasted Thomas. I'd have, I'd have, <laughs> I'd have ridiculed Thomas. I have embarrassed Thomas. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but Jesus doesn't. He says one of the most important statements in the Bible, verse 5, or verse 6, excuse me. I, Jesus said to him, I am, there's that ego in me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, now, in your Bible, you might want to circle the word Father and connect it with the where of verse 5 in Thomas's question and the place of verse 2. Because the place of verse 2 and the where of Thomas' question is answered, that's where the Father is. And except through me, and what I did is I circled me in the end of verse 6 with the way in verse 4. So again, the place and the way is about a person. The place is where the Father is, where Jesus sits enthroned at his right hand, and the way how you get there, hadash, is through Jesus. That's why the early church in the first decade was not called the church. It was called the way. We are people of the way. And you will see, I don't know if you remember that when we studied the book of Acts, but there are a couple of instances in the early chapters of the book of Acts where the, yeah. the, 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 the believers in Jerusalem and the believers in Judea were called the people of the way. Where did they get that? From this verse, from Christ's teaching, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the way is Jesus is the, is the means by which you get to the place where the Father and Son are. And so there is no other way. And notice how exclusive Christ's statement is. No one comes to the Father except through me. There aren't multiple ways to heaven. There aren't 17 different ways to heaven. Just choose one. There's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ. It's not through Muhammad. It's not through Buddha. It's not through, the, through Shiva, one of the key gods of Hinduism. It's not through the ethicist Confucius. It's not through the teachings of Joseph Smith. It's through Jesus. And so this is what makes the postmodern, post-Christian world so uncomfortable. This is a very exclusive yeah. statement. No one mm -hmm. comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive. And I, I mean, mm -hmm. I just I don't want to make you uncomfortable with that, but I want to drive that home. There are not multiple ways to God. There's one. And mm -hmm. it's through Jesus. And then the other two parts of his declaration, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is, is secondly, I am the truth. And that's that's crucial and critically important because in the context, truth is not only the absolute standard, all truth is God's truth, but also truth in the sense of everything the Old Testament texts have been teaching about God, about the about the, the mm -hmm. attributes and character traits of God, about the prophecies of the coming Messiah, who is also God. He is the fulfillment of all of that truth. And that statement, when I taught ethics, I had a, a, a session on all truth is God's truth, that God is the source of everything that's true. God knows everything exhaustively, mm -hmm. And everything mm -hmm. that is true is sourced in him. The mathematical mm -hmm. equation, 2 plus 2 equals 4, is sourced in God. He created his universe based on mathematical certainty. And 2 plus 2 equals 4 is part of that absolute certainty. Gravity, which Newton understood and, and, and talked about in his tremendous book, is dealing with mathematical calculus and all that stuff, mathematical certainty about a force that holds much of the universe together, at least on planet Earth, holds it together. And I'm, I could go on and on and on. But the point is that everything that's true is sourced in Jesus. But most importantly, everything that is true about God, everything that's true about God's promises, everything that is true about the prophecies and the prophetic truth in the Scriptures is all fulfilled and centered in Jesus. Anything that's true has its source in Jesus. And so there is... Yeah, I'm one of the things... Let me, let me finish here. So there is such a thing as absolute truth. And because of this verse, truth is not relative. Truth yeah. isn't circumstantial. Truth is absolute. 
The challenge is for you and me who are finite, and finite means limited, and have that struggle with sin, even the way in which sin distorts how we think, that's the challenge we have. How do we as finite creatures come to understand the nature of absolute truth? Jesus is telling us, you start with me. You start with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens. That's a propositional truth claim <laughs> statement, and the basis for everything you're going to do when you study science. You begin mm -hmm. with God. And so that is, again, I mean, I'm, I'm elaborating and in a way embellishing all of this statement that I am the truth, but it is foundational to ethics. It's foundational for philosophy. It's foundational to science. It's foundational to history. All of those disciplines of human knowledge, you begin with your understanding of who God is, what he has done, and how does he relate to this study. Now, I'm sorry, I just wanted to finish all that. No, that, that's good, Jim. I think the certainty of no one, uh, when we have a world that says, as you referred to earlier, um, there's many, many ways, you know, to God. And, and when we, when we, sh we are sharing the truth of Christ and, and what it means to become a Christian, I think, you know, this verse is really, really rock solid in the sense of its clarity, as you mentioned, no one. And, and we have to leave it there with that person, but in the process of testifying about Christ and salvation, how it comes, we can be certain of that. And then, as you mentioned, as your friend shared with you, we leave it there for them to make that decision. But we can be confident in what we've said to that person yep. is, is factual. Yep, that's right. And then thirdly is the life. And you, you can look at that in, in two dimensions life, physical life. Jesus, we've, we've read about that in this gospel, and you read about it in other parts of the Bible. He is the source of physical life. He breathed into Adam. But in, in this context, even more importantly, he is the source of eternal life, because his death, burial, and resurrection is what made eternal life possible for us. Why can we spend eternity with God? Because of what Jesus did for us. In paying the price Suffering the suffering the the wrath of God upon his being God the Father upon his being, the words of Isaiah 53, becoming a curse for us, paying the penalty which is death for us, etc. We therefore have eternal life. So again, when you when you take this, and it's an incredibly extraordinary statement of Christ. It's a declaration. I am Yahweh, the great I am, self-existent, self-sufficient being in the universe. I am the way the truth, and the life. When you look at those three claims of Christ, almost everything is summarized in those three statements. The way, the truth, and the life. It's all sourced in Jesus. It's centered in Jesus. And as the author of Hebrews says, when you have Jesus, you have the foundation of everything you need. When you have Jesus, as Paul says to the Colossians, when you have Jesus, you have the beginning point of all philosophical discourse. When you have mm -hmm. Jesus, you have the beginning point of properly understanding the physical world. My wife um, grows zinnias. I don't know if you what zinnias are, but they're a special flower, and she's just got them all over the place. And now, I mean, they're really tall, but they're incredibly spectacular, and she brings a new bouquet of them in about every day. And I sit here at the dining room table and our meals and I look at them. And when you look at those, every single one of those flowers is unique. It's got distinctive shapes. It's got distinctive color. It's got distinctive shades of color blended into one. And that's, that's my wife, her little clusters of vineyards all over the yard. And there are billions and billions and billions of them all over Nebraska and the United States. And I assume they're grown in other parts of the world as well. To me, that drives me to understanding I have a creator who absolutely loves beauty, variety, and diversity, and I see it in just a few flowers every summer. 
Now, the atheist is going to say, oh, no, you don't. That's all a result of random, this random forces in the universe. Darwin called it it. Uh, Darwin had a, a term for it, natural selection. But it's random. There's no design to it. Well, you may believe that. But if you're a Christian, it's, you're driven to the clear argument of Scripture that this is a result of our Creator, the source of all life, the source of all truth. And he provides the way to an eternal relationship with him. That's what Jesus just said to the disciples. And he says, I want to remind you, you only come to the Father through me. There's no other way to the Father. We would add, thinking of the place, there's no way to heaven except through Christ. We could add another. There's no way to eternal life except through Christ. Now, I really, I wanted to, I spent a good bit of time, almost 15 minutes on just this verse. But this is a very, very important. It's almost as important as Genesis 1.1. It, separate, it separates out a lot of the junk. It separates a lot of the accoutrements that come with, with the teachings of humans over, this, over the centuries that encrust upon God and, and, and blind him out, darken him out. No, it strips all that away. There are three bedrock things to remember in the Christian worldview. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. They are the three bedrock triangular stools on the Christian worldview uh, 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 um, stool. All right. Got it? Nobody saying anything, so I'm going to assume you got it. Verse 7. I got it. I got it. Thank you, Woody. Good. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So again, what you saw in verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus is saying, if you had known me, you would have known the father also. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Now, there again is this mutual coherence. The two, in this case, we're just talking about two, two persons of the Trinity, interdependent, interrelated. They do everything together mutually. They never act independent of one another. So Jesus says, you both know him and have seen him. So now another disciple stands up. His name is Philip in verse 8, and he says this, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. I read from the ESV translation. That's, that's a good translation. But I would put it this way. Show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. This will answer all our questions. And you when, you, when you read Philip's statement, again, you're astonished. What? <laughs> I mean, it's so obvious, Philip. But you and I have the tremendous advantage of all 66 books of the Bible. He only had 39 of them. Jesus said to him, I'm in verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Now, I added the tone of voice and inflection of my voice. I think that's probably the best I could do to represent what Jesus' tone and inflection. Have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip? Almost exasperation. And then another declarative statement. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the Father. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, 15, that Jesus is the revelation of the Father. He is the creator. He is the eternal. He is the one who holds everything together. So Paul, excuse me, Jesus is saying, you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the revelation of what you can't see. But you, God is spirit. You want to know what God is? This is what he said to the woman in John chapter 4. What God, I am the revelation of that. Every attribute, every character trait, that defines who God is, you see it in me. Because I am God. I'm the second person of the Trinity. 
How can you say, the end of verse 9, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? One essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. That's the only way that rhetorical question makes sense. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? One essence of three persons who differ relationally, Father, Son, and Spirit, and differ functionally. They each have a different responsibility and role within the Trinitarian relationship. And as Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, the Father loves me and I love the Father. And that wonderful definition of that interdependent, mutual authority, mutual power, etc., that is a part of the Trinitarian relationship. And so in declaring who he is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and declaring that if you see me, you've seen the Father, Jesus is expanding on, you believe in God, believe also in me. Because I want to remind, this is in effect what Jesus is saying, I want to remind you of who I am. I want to remind you of what I have been teaching you. And I want to remind you that what I am teaching you is going to transform your life. You still don't get all this. And this that was true. They still have more time with Jesus. They're going to see him die. They're going to see him be resurrected. They're going to see him ascend. Then the Holy Spirit's going to come. And then these guys are going to be absolutely transformed. But all of this Jesus is teaching them again and again and again. Here he's summarizing so much of what he's been teaching. It's utterly profound for them. And then, uh, where am I? Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So it's, this is deep truth. I'm in the Father and Father's in me. If you still don't, if you still can't quite grasp that and quite internalize it, remember something else. Believe on the account of the works themselves. And that's from chapter 5, verse 36 to chapter 10, verse 38. All of those works wrapped around the great I am statements. And so Jesus is just saying that I know this is hard for you to grasp this and internalize this but you already have the evidence of all my messianic works. Go back and rethink and review those. That will prove the propositional statement in theology that I am in the Father and Father's in me. I know that's hard for you guys to grasp. This is what Jesus is saying. I know that's hard for you to internalize that. But right now, at least believe on the works. Because remember he says, these over and over again, I'm doing the works that the Father wants me to do. I am doing what the Father's commissioned. I'm doing what the Father's called me to do. An interdependent relationship between the Father and Son. And Jesus says, at least review those and focus on those. We're going to get all this. And so that's, that's good. Sometimes when you're teaching, your students don't get all of the deep things you're trying to get across, but you're starting to get some of it. And that's what Jesus is saying. At least review and believe all that you saw and all that you heard in John's gospel from chapter 5 to chapter 10. All right. Okay. Can I go on? Yeah, that'd be fine, Jim. Thank you, Woody. I appreciate it. Verse 12. Now, I mean, this is all Jesus is continuing. I'm breaking it into segments to discuss it, explain it, and then see if you've got questions. But now he continues. Truly, truly, I say, remember, truly, truly is amen, amen. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Now, that, that would have been a fantastic thing for them to hear. Because he just said, if you still can't process and internalize the great theological truth that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, focus on my works. But I'm going to tell you another thing. I'm going to make you another promise. And the promise is, believe in me, you'll do the works I do. 
and you read the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts, that is exactly what they do. They will do the messianic miracles that Jesus did. The phrase signs and wonders that you see throughout the gospel accounts that describe what Jesus is doing, the apostles will do in the first 15 chapters of Acts, that important transitional book between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. But then he makes this statement, which would absolutely have blown them out of the water. But I'm telling you, you're going to do greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Now listen, this is really important. He has taught them this, and he's going to teach them this in the Upper Room Discourse. It's coming up in 14, 15, and 16, but this is referring to the Holy Spirit. Greater works. The, the word greater, if you look at it's a superlative. You look at that in Greek, it has mega in it, M-E-G-A. We talk about mega things, but mega, it's greater works, greater in degree, greater in geographical outreach, and greater in effect. Why? Because they're not just going to be in Judea and, and Galilee. They're going to be all over the Roman world. So that greater is degree, geographical distance, and outreach. They're going to reach far more people than Jesus did. Another way of saying it is because Jesus is going back to the Father, completing his work, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He sits down at the right hand of the Father, and now his mediatorial role, he's now our mediator between the Father, uh, with the Father. Now, more things are going to be done because that work is completed and because the Holy Spirit comes than if Jesus had just stayed on earth. And that's what he's going to keep telling them. It is to your advantage I'm going back to the Father. You're going to do greater things than I did, which would have caused them to scratch their head. What do you mean by that? In degree, in geographical outreach, in outreach to people. And then he explains why this will occur. Look at the promise of verse 13 and 14. Jesus' new mediatorial role. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So now you have part of the new order, part of the new covenant community, is a new dynamic of prayer. Jesus now is the mediator. At the right hand of the Father, he sits and he's not silent. He sits as our mediator, our advocate, and he prays for us. He intercedes for us. And when we pray in his name, he will do what we ask. Now, again, in his name implies you're going to be asking in a way that the Son may be glorified. I mean, look at verse 13. Our prayer is, our prayer life is focused on in his name, his power, his authority, but also in line with the glorification of the Father through the Son. And so I mean to pray to the Lord, Lord, please give me a royal blue 911 Porsche Turbo. Number one, that's really not in the name of Christ. That's a selfish, self-centered prayer. It's a great prayer. That's supposed to cause you to laugh, but you're all on silence mute, so you didn't laugh. I didn't hear you laugh. But also, God the Father is hardly going to be glorified through the Son if I am praying for a royal blue night of Porsche. That's a selfish, self-centered prayer. Not necessarily evil, but it's the wrong focus of my prayer life. Jesus is saying your prayer life's going to change. You're not only going to do greater works than I do in terms of the outreach and geographical and all the things I've been talking about. But also, your prayer life is now going to be affected in the sense that I'm taking on a new mediatorial role. I'm now the mediator between you and the Heavenly Father, because I will be at the right hand of the Father. And we are going to learn, and that's what's coming up in the next paragraphs, about how the Holy Spirit fits into all of this. So, 
And then these first 14 verses of John chapter 14 are filled with, I mean, in the real meaning of that overused word, unbelievable truth. That promise of a new home, of his return, of a grand reunion, and then the, the tremendous, almost unimaginable truth about Jesus. Again, I am the way, the truth, and the life that exclusive claim of Jesus. And then this, again, this review of this relationship between him and the Father, that you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you have, I am the final revelation of God. And then this last incredible promise of you're going to do greater works than I do, because you're going to spread all over the world. You will not be confined to just Judea and Galilee, and then all the things we've been talking about. All right, now let me let me stop there. Are you getting all this? <laughs> this is a lot. This is an intense session today. I know that. Okay. Yeah, we're getting it. Yeah, it's really good, Jim. Very good. All right. Now I we got what time? Okay, we got about ten, twelve minutes. Let's begin. And again, this this section that begins with verse sixteen. Uh, sorry, verse fifteen begins to now give some unique teaching about the Holy Spirit. He has talked about the coming of the helper, the parakletos, the, the counselor. He's talked about him before, but now he's going to really start expanding on this. Because this is the key, this meaning, the Holy Spirit is the key to the greater works that are discussed in verse 12, and also helps us to understand a little more this mediatorial role of Jesus as our intercessor, as our advocate, and so on. So let's look at how Jesus couches this. How does he introduce this? If you love me, that's a first-class condition in the Greek language. It would be legitimate to translate that, since you love me. Now, the problem for us in English is when we introduce a phrase with if, it's very conditional. Well, and that is understandable. But in the Greek language, which is much more complex than English, in the Greek language, there were three conditional statements. And this one is a conditional statement based on something assumed to be, to be true. This is a condition based on an established fact and an established relationship. So it's therefore legitimate for us, since you love me, we already have a relationship. We already have a relationship based on love. I love you. I demonstrate it by going to the cross for you, et cetera, et cetera. You love me because you've embraced by faith what I've done for you. And you and I now have a relationship. So you could even translate it, or maybe it'd be better to say paraphrase it here, you can even paraphrase it, because you love me, keep my commandments. So Jesus is tying something that's central to the old covenant, that's central to the law, that's central to the ceremonial law of Israel. Why do you go through all the sacrifices in the Old Testament? Why do you love your neighbor as yourself? Leviticus 19. Because you love God. So love and obedience are tied together in the Old Testament. Love and obedience are the foundation stone of the new covenant. Because you love me, Jesus says, obey me. So that's why when I teach on sanctification or I do discipleship or mentoring sessions with young men, I used to always stress our role now as disciples of Jesus, is to walk in loving obedience with him. We're not obeying because we are fearful that he's going to snuff us out like the Greeks and Romans were about Zeus, or Jupiter, the Romans called him, that we're afraid of Zeus because we're afraid he's going to throw a thunderbolt at us and send a great storm and ruin our crops. So we're going to offer him blood sacrifices to reduce his anger. That's not how you look at God. God is your Savior through Jesus Christ. God is your Redeemer through Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of all he's done for you, you love him. 
And your obedience to him is rooted in your love for him. And so that becomes a huge marker of the new covenant community. The new covenant community walks with Jesus in loving obedience. Unlike the Greco-Roman world, which were terrified at their gods and offered the sacrifices to placate them, that is not defining your relationship with God. You love him because of what he's done for you, and therefore you desire to obey him. So that's a premise of our new relationship, if I can put it that way, of our new relationship with God through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Okay, if you accepted that, that defines you by faith. Now, here's your, here's your life now. It's a life of loving obedience. I'm no longer afraid of God. I love God. Now, there's a dimension of all, his majesty and power, but I don't cower in fear of God. I love God. He wants a relationship. And that's why those words that I alerted you to, we're going to look for my peace, my love, my joy, my friends. They are the outworkings of this love relationship. So we love him, we therefore obey him. And now verse 16, another way of defining and refining what he said in 13 and 14. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. Now, I read from the ESV, and they're translating that helper. It could be translated counselor. It could be translated advocate. Because those terms are also used of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is called our advocate. It's the exact same word. It's parakletos is the Greek word. It's exactly the same word. So as Jesus is our counselor and our advocate, he's saying, because you love me, keep my commandments, and I, this is what's going to happen now. Because you're walking in loving obedience with me, there's another change coming. I'm going to send another one just like me. As I am like the Father, he has seen me, has seen the Father, I'm going to send another one, because I'm going to pray to the Father, and the Father and I are going to send another one just like me. <laughs> And he is going to be called the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to take up a residence in you. That Holy Spirit is going to indwell you. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you will be the new temple of God, which is absolutely extraordinary. And we'll talk about that coming up, because that's one of the things he continues to teach. But don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Part of what I'm now going to do for you in my mediatorial role is I'm going to talk to the Father when I go back there. I'm sort of making it up, and I'm putting it in a paraphrase. I'm going to talk to the Father when I get back there, and then he and I are going to send another one just like me, another paracletos, another advocate, another counselor, to be with you for the next three weeks. <laughs> Everything's muted, so I didn't hear your laugh. To be with you forever. Yes. Even the spirit of truth. What did Jesus say in verse 16? I am the way, the truth, and life. I'm sending another one just like me, who is the spirit of truth. As you trusted me as the source of all truth, you can trust him because he's the spirit of truth. He will never lie to you. He will never deceive you. He, and this is what Jesus is going to start teaching. He will guide you. He will direct you. He will teach you all that I've commanded unto you. I mean, men, I am absolutely amazed at our God and what he's doing here. He is, and this is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's not only sent the Son to die for us and victoriously conquer death through his resurrection and be the exalted Lord of the universe seated at the right hand of the Father. He sends another one just like Jesus who indwells us to make sure that we finish well to make sure that we persevere and endure and we grow in the sanctifying grace of God to achieve the goal he has for us to become like his son. And I mean, this is just, this is absolutely incredible what Christ is telling to these guys, saying to these guys. Our relationship is now defined by loving obedience. And in my mediatorial role, when I go back to heaven, I'm going to talk to the Father, and we're going to send another one just like me. <laughs> 
And as I am the source of all truth, so will he. He's the spirit of truth. That's one of his titles. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him because he dwells in you and will be in you. He's going to explain that in chapter 16. But that is the new temple of the living God, and it is the Holy Spirit, one just like Jesus, who takes up residence within us. We are the new temple. Yeah. Yep. When, when you see the patience and the love of Jesus Christ, and somehow, sometimes we are impatient with ourselves. We, we feel like we need to be ahead of where we are. But can you comment uh, on that in light of these scriptures, these recent ones that you've just finished here? Well, in, yeah. In terms of being patient with ourselves, because this great patience and love um, needs to be self-identified and encouraging ourselves, doesn't it, in some way? Well, encourage her in ourselves with what Jesus has said, not not. Some yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I'm seeing. Not within ourselves, you know, but because of this truth. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jesus is defining here the elements of the new covenant community, and the elements yeah. of the new new covenant community, and Jesus will call that the church. But the new covenant community is the Holy Spirit. And it becomes then, and here's where Paul really elaborates on this later in his writings, but it's that important distinction between justification and sanctification. And it's that important mm-hmm. difference between you come to faith in Christ, believe in me, believe also in God. Okay, that's the statement of faith. Now you begin that trust relationship rooted in your love for all that God's done for you, and you begin to learn what obedience looks like. But I want to make sure you understand, Jesus is saying, this call to obedience rooted in your love for me, I'm going to give you the resources to be able to do that. One just like me, who's going to indwell you, which he just said in verse 17. I mean, this is all fulfilling new covenant promises of Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. But it is this God is now giving us and it's that complementary work of the Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all working together to accomplish our sanctification. And that is, is a work that, that continues. It's a walk of loving obedience. We learn this as we walk with the Lord in loving obedience. It gives us a resource to pull it off. I kind of feel like uh, we got a team. We have that's that's it. Not we, just we by ourselves. We do have. We're not alone. That's exactly right. We're part of Team God. Yeah, right. Team God <laughs> is three persons of that one essence helping us to be all He wants us to be. That's exactly right. And then you add to that, the other part of the team are all other believers. The the guys in this class. We're all a part of the team. We're mutually encouraging each other. We're mutually stimulating one in the words of Hebrews to love and good deeds. We're pulling one another along. We're bearing one another's burdens. All of those things are a part of the process. But it starts with that act of faith in Christ, which then begins that journey, which is a glorious journey to eternity. So I mean, these are these are fantastic promises Christ is making here. And I'm spending a lot of time on this because I really want you guys to understand this. That's why the Upper Room Discourse of Christ, 14, 15, and 16, are absolutely central to understanding your life and the promises God has made to you and the fantastic grace that he's just poured out upon us. And that's why that statement, another helper, another parakletos, another counselor, another advocate, all words used of Jesus, all, I'm going to send you one just like me. But the difference is that's part of doing greater works, just like me, not confined to one place, Judea and Galilee. It's going to be all over the world. And you're going to do greater things than I did in my three years of public ministry, which is exactly what's happening even in 2020. This is wonderful stuff, guys. I know you know that, but I'm so excited about it. I don't want to stop, but it's approaching <laughs> 10 of 1, and I, I've got to go to another Bible study it starts at 1.15. I've got to get across the city to get there. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to turn it off and leave. All right? 
And if that's, uh, I can't help it, I got to go. So I'm going to pray. Father, we are grateful for this wondrous, marvelous passage of scripture we studied. Just these few verses in John chapter 14. These are the exalted truth of who Jesus is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have seen me. You've seen the Father. You, 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 you believe in me, believe also in God. And I'm going to tell you, when I get back to the Father, I'm going to send another one just like me, another counselor, another advocate, and it's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to indwell you, which is going to enable you to do greater works than I did. And Lord, these are all promises that still are applicable to us. Thank you for your amazing grace in our lives, your amazing mercy and compassion that you rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness. You rescued us out of a life of sin and have put us on the track of being conformed to the image of Christ. We know that is a process that takes the rest of our lives, but we don't want to go back. We just want to go forward with you. Energize, enable us, and empower us to trust you, to believe you, to claim your promises, and to go forward each day toward that wondrous goal of being like Christ. So be with these men. May they be men of faith, men of God, who represent you well. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Bye-bye. Thank you, Thank you gentlemen. Have a great week. God bless. Bye.